Ah, wasn't that, wasn't that last song great? I mean, yes, amazing. And, and it's amazing, especially because of how well it addresses the series that we're currently in. Uh, I mean, last week, uh, Pastor Alex was talking about abundant life, not just eternal, but abundant um, and actually, abundant life is eternal in its abundance. Isn't that awesome? But, but for those of us who are the ones who have received that kind of life because we are following the one true good shepherd, we can sing those songs. Our chains are gone. Uh, the things that used to hold us in bondage are gone. Now, don't get me wrong. I carry around in me all of the same tendencies that I had before I came to know Christ. And sometimes those things creep up and jump me. And I find myself back in those old ways. But I am not mastered by them. I'm only taken by surprise sometimes. The fact is that in Christ, I'm free from those things. Like you, I'm not the person I was. Sometimes I look like that guy, but I'm not him. I'm not him. I have been set free, especially when it pertains to how I relate to God. I am free from the fear that one day he's going to do this and I'm going to find myself like that ant on your counter, right? No, I'm free from that kind of fear, from that kind of bondage. I am free to go out and to be light, even though some who remember how I was might look at me and say, there's nothing light in there. There's only darkness. No, the fact of the matter is, Jesus is the light of the world. He's in me. And somehow he gets out. <laughs> um, hey, I'm glad to see you here. I'm glad to be here, actually. I'm honored to be here. I am blessed to be here. For those of you who've been involved at Alliance Bible Church for a long time. You have literally seen me in the past take a manuscript and say, this is not what God wants, and throw it aside and, and do something different. I would do that today, except that I don't have a manuscript. So, <laughs> so, um, so I'm interested to see what's going to happen. Actually, I was just telling Pastor Alex... Um, Debbie and I have a small group that meets on Tuesday evenings. That small group is made up primarily of young adults. And uh, what happens on a Tuesday evening is that we get together, and for about the first uh, one to two-thirds, maybe somewhere around half of the time that we spend together, we look at a passage of Scripture and we discuss, you know, and I ask the question, okay, now that we've read that, 
How does that impact you? What sense do you get? What in there stands out to you? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? How do you understand it? You know, just give me all the feedback you can give. And, and we go through and talk about those things, some questions that arise, some answers to previous questions, things that the Holy Spirit has just revealed anew about a passage. Um, but then the end of the, of, of the evening, I tend to go back and go like, okay, here's kind of the summary of the passage, and here's what it's teaching. But we have a specific focus on Tuesday evenings. That focus comes down to this question. I ask this question every single week when we get together. What does that have to do with how we carry the gospel through our lives? That is, how does this information inform our interactions with lost people? This message is going to look a lot like the last half to one-third of, of one of our Tuesday evening meetings. And so what that means is, um, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and manifest his presence, we're in trouble. So I want to pray. If you would, please stand with me and pray with me. Just echo back the amens about this whole prayer. Heavenly Father... First, I am thankful to be in the presence of this cloud of witnesses. I am thankful to be gathered together with my brothers and sisters in this place to worship you. I am thankful for your word that tells us what you have to say. I am thankful for your Holy Spirit who teaches us and guides us into all the truth. And that's what we seek today. We seek a manifestation of your spirit in presence and in the telling of truth, into the guiding, into all of the truth that you have for us this morning. It's not just this morning, though. It's not just an isolated event. We have been heading down a path for a long time together. And I desire that this morning you would move us further down that path together. I pray it in Jesus' name for the sake of your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're in a new series, but this series does not stand by itself. It could, but fortunately, there's a bigger picture outside of this series. This series has to do with how Jesus defines life. In fact, that he defines life as he himself. He is the author of it. He is the source of it. He is the giver of it. Life is in him. And he bestows it abundantly upon those who follow him, the one true and good shepherd. But this passage that we're looking at this morning, which, by the way, is John chapter 10, 
beginning at verse 22 and going through verse 39. If you want to look at it, um, it might be helpful, but I'm going to tell you, we're going to be jumping around a bit. We're going to look at Psalm 82. We're going to talk about Daniel. We're going to look at the first half of John chapter 10, which Pastor Alex spoke about last week. We're going to look at John chapter 5, and then, of course, we're going to come back around here to John chapter 10, 22 through 39. So if you can remember all those things, just put your finger in all those places in your Bible. Uh, if not, just uh, come back and watch the video online a few times and see if it all makes sense. So here we are at John chapter 10, verse 22. And it's really an interesting passage to me. Let, me. let me read it for you. In fact, let me read all the way down from 22 to 39, just so we get the whole idea. And then I'll go back and fill some things in. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name These testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The Jews, or Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Jesus, I'm sorry, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world that you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, 
they were seeking again to seize him. And he eluded their grasp. Sound familiar at all? Is there anything about this you think you might have heard before? Let me take you back to April 24th. On April 24th of this year, I was privileged again to deliver a message. That message was about John chapter 5. That's actually the beginning of this conversation. This conversation has been going on for somewhere between six and nine months, depending how you count the days. Um, Jesus, in John chapter 5, said almost all the same words. He was talking about the whole shepherd illustration. Um, He was saying about the Jews, he literally said these words, you look at the scripture because you believe that in them you have eternal life. And then here in John 10, he brings that full circle. And he talks about eternal life. But back then, we were saying that the Jews were kind of pointing to Jesus, going, we don't need any witnesses because of what you've said. Jesus corrected them and said, hey, Moses says you have to have two witnesses. You have to have two witnesses. You can't be the judge and a witness. So find some witnesses in order to be consistent with the law that you claim to be upholding. And of course, they could not produce those witnesses. But Jesus said, hey, on my side of this equation, for the things I've said, I have five witnesses. You need two, you can't produce one. I have five for my side of the issue. I have John the Baptist, whom you respect. You respect John, you've asked him, he's told you about me. There's one witness. I have the works I do. I have the Father testifies of me. I have the law testifies of me. And even Moses testified of me. Five witnesses, all things that you trust, claiming that I am okay, that what I'm doing is true and right, and I am who I say I am. Well, that was the beginning of it. And at that time, they wanted to take up stones and stone him, but he got away. Several months later came John chapter 10, which Pastor Alex talked about last week. In John chapter 10, they returned to this whole illustration about the shepherd and the sheep. Jesus expanded on a little bit, talked about the door and the fact that he's the door. But in both cases, he pointed to the fact that it's believing me and following me that leads to the eternal life that they were seeking way back in John chapter 5. Now today, we come up to John chapter 11, and it's like three months after the things Pastor Alex was talking about last week. It is the Feast of Dedication. Today we call that Hanukkah. Another name for it was the Festival of Lights. It's interesting because way back in Deuteronomy, after God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, 
brought them through the Red Sea, put them out into the wilderness for 40 years, and was bringing them to the promised land in order to keep his promise. Back there, Moses, or God commanded through Moses, that there were certain times each year that every adult male in Israel was supposed to come to Jerusalem and take part in a feast, a festival. And those things recounted God's faithfulness, how he rescued his people from slavery, how he delivered them from the hands of the Egyptian armies, how he cared and nurtured for them in the wilderness, how he promised them a place of their own, and how he finally delivered and really caused the land to begin to flow with milk and honey as he had promised. Those festivals were about God keeping his promise. But this festival in John 10, 22, is a little different. It's a feast. John 10, 22 says, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. What's going on here is that for good reason, the Jews decided there's another thing that God did that we want to celebrate every year. And so we're going to do it. We'll make a feast. Um, that event took place 160 years or so, 190 years before Jesus was there. It starts with a guy named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had this massive empire which included Judea, which is Israel. Um, when Alexander died at the ripe old age of 33 years old, uh, he had no plan for what was supposed to happen to his global empire after his death. No plan. So four of his generals argued about it and divided the kingdom up four ways. Um, they also eventually fought with one another and, you know, took over one another's territory here and there and little skirmishes that went along so that Israel, Judea, um, was conquered from time to time by one or more of these generals. Um, in 170, I think it was 171 B.C., it's right near there, um, 172, somewhere. This generations had gone by, and this leader, this military leader arose named Antiochus Epiphanes. He conquered Jerusalem in 169. It was 169. And uh, two years later, in 167, one of his religious leaders, people he had appointed, people who actually bought their position in, in Antiochus uh, uh, Empire, bought the right to be Antiochus high priest. This guy went to the temple in Jerusalem in 167 B.C. and dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus. Kicked God out, brought Zeus in, slaughtered a pig on the, on the altar and fulfilled Daniel's prophecy that 
there would be something called the abomination that makes desolate. This was fulfilled in 167. Three years later, this Jewish rebellion that rose up retook the temple. A guy named Judas Maccabeus came along and reclaimed Jerusalem and the temple and rededicated it. Now, the process of dedicating the temple to God took eight days. During that time, lights were lit. And so, in the celebration of Hanukkah, you see the menorah with eight candles on it, right? Those candles, at that time, were oil lamps. There was enough oil to keep the light burning for one day, and they needed to keep it burning for eight days, but the light kept burning for eight days. They attributed that as a miracle of God, and once the temple was dedicated because of those things, um, Jews decided we're going to have a feast every year and remember this dedication of the temple. So that's what was going on. And Jesus celebrated that with his disciples in John 10, 22. So he came in to the temple mount at the feast of dedication. Now it says it was winter. When is Hanukkah? December, right around Christmas time, right? Maybe a little before. Um, But it was winter. Winter in Jerusalem. Winter in the high spot in Jerusalem. It was probably cold. It was probably miserable. It was not one of those festivals where everybody had to go there every year. So basically, Jesus took up a position in a sheltered part of the temple, Solomon's portico, uh, Solomon's porch. Brought his disciples with him, and they're there, probably sheltering from the wind because the, if he's in the east on Solomon's portico, which is where that is, the temple would be to the west, the prevailing wind would be blocked by the temple itself. And so it was kind of a protected place. So Jesus and his disciples are there doing who knows what. But one thing we know is the gigantic crowds of John 5 and John 10, 1 were not there. And the Jews kind of took this opportunity to confront Jesus and really try to nail him down. Because, hey, They were always the guys standing way back here with the crowd in between them and Jesus, watching what he was doing, looking for some kind of way to be able to get their hands on him, arrest him, and remove him from public life. It says early on they wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. But this time... There's no gigantic crowd. There might have been a few, but no gigantic crowds. So they saw their opportunity to confront Jesus in an actual conversation and get him to commit blasphemy, or at least from their perspective, it would be blasphemy. So they just went up to him. I'm sure they didn't just walk up to him and go, okay, here's the trap, let's spring it. Tell us plain, are you the Messiah? But it was probably something like, 
they were asking him questions and they were having a conversation and the disciples were watching and there might have been a small crowd gathered together looking on kind of marveling at what's going on we don't have any of the details of how this actually ramped up to the point where they said okay we've been going back and forth for a while but just just lay it on the line for us will you jesus just say it are you the messiah mm. I want to look at exactly how Jesus answers them. Tell us plainly, are you this? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Jesus answered them, I told you. I told you. Past tense. I told you, you do not believe. Present tense. I told you, you've had the answer for a long time. You still don't believe. So you know what? Just look at the things I do. He's back to John chapter 5 saying, here's the evidence. Right? Here's the evidence. The works. The works I do. The Father. The Father is bearing testimony. Right? The Word. The Word's there. In fact, let me, let me go on here. This is... This is really an interesting thing. Um, he's kind of being gentle with them. But he's not pulling any punches. Okay? Now, just like on Bugs Bunny, just like on the Roadrunner, the 10-ton anvil is going to land here. Okay? But at this point, he's actually trying to woo them. He's He's telling them things, and he's calling them to things in order to give them the opportunity to repent. I mean, we keep pointing at this, but it's really going on. Jesus is again and again and again explaining. And in this case, he says, as Pastor Alex pointed out last week, it's those who follow me. Believe it. Right? Here's what I say. Here's what I do. What I do reinforces what I say. Believe it. He says, exercise faith. Trust God. He even back in John chapter 5 said, the, the law and Moses, they testify of me. Believe it. But like so many politicians from the garden on, I shouldn't even say politicians because it's not necessarily politicians, but it's people who seek to, to gain power and influence for themselves, for their own sake, who have done this from the garden of Eden. Uh, of Eden. They take the law and they use it. They don't follow it. And that's what's going on. He's telling them, stop using the law. Instead, follow it, trust it, believe it, hear it, see it lived out. Look at my works. 
and let your faith flow in the direction that Moses pointed, that the law points. That direction is me. Believe and receive eternal life. He's right there in this passage. Goes to the eternal life thing. I told you, you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me, and I give eternal life to them. The same eternal life that half a year ago or more, you were saying you desire to find in God's word. And he goes through this important thing, which is exactly what Pastor Alex was talking about last week, where we have confidence that we have eternal life, abundant life, because we get to this point where it's not about us, it's about Jesus whom we trust And he is able to keep us. Our security is in him. You know, that's part of abundant life, having security. If we had to worry all the time about, oh, whether abundant life is in effect right now for me because of something I did, said, or thought, that would not be abundant life. That is not secure. Jesus offers the security because it is he who gave his life in order that we might have that abundant life. We cannot undo that. We cannot undo what Jesus did. Credit Pastor Alex on that one last week. And he says this in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Just as for their whole history, the nation of Israel had been saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now, we don't understand one today. We don't understand one because it doesn't mean that we are exactly the same. What it means is that there is unity. You know, to get, today we like to say that God is the God of diversity, as if diversity were the thing and that God somehow oversees it. But it's not. In all of their history, the one thing that Israel pointed at time and time again is that God within himself is undivided. He has integrity. There's unity in God. He is not internally conflicted. That's the point. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, what he's saying is, there's no conflict between me and the Father in this case. But the only way there could be no conflict is if they have the same mind if they have the same goals, if they have the same purpose, if they have the same character, if they have the same essence, if they have the same nature. Every human being is somehow conflicted with God. 
But Jesus says, between him and me, no conflict. No conflict. What happened just a few months ago? A man was healed who was born blind. And the Pharisees came to find this guy saying, hey, who's the guy? We know this guy is a sinner. Point him out to us. Blind says, hey, that's not for me to decide. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. You decide. But I can tell you this. Nobody's ever done this before. Nobody's ever healed anyone who was born blind. So he's basically saying, only God does that. So here we are. Jesus say, I and the Father are one. And that on its own merit was enough for them to pick up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him on the spot, right there in the Solomon's portico inside the temple on top of the Temple Mount. But later on, we see that they only wanted to seize him. I'm not sure why they backed off, except that he said this. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? And they said, not for a good work, but because you are blaspheming and you, being a man, make yourself out God. That's literally what it says there. It doesn't say, you make yourself out to be God. Those words don't appear there. They're just there in English because that's how we speak. That's our syntax. That's our correct, uh, the correct use of the English language. All it says is, you make yourself out God. There's no doubt in their minds that Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the Father have no conflict between us. We are unified. Now, in the past, Jesus had been aware of several things going on at one time. Whenever Jesus is in the temple talking, he's talking to the crowds. So he knows the crowd is listening. And he has to speak in a way that's meaningful to the crowd, to the average person, to us sitting here in the pews. He's also aware that he has his disciples following him around from the time he first called a few of them from their fishing boats. So he knows that he's also speaking in a way which speaks directly to that small group of followers within the big crowd. And he's aware of a third thing that's going on. The Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they're chasing him around trying to find a way to accuse him. And so he knows that everything he's saying, they are hearing in a specific way. And so he's speaking to them. In this case, the disciples might be there, There's probably a few people in the crowd, a really small crowd, because it's just a miserable day, most likely. But the guys who are the focus right now are the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. And so in the past, Jesus has used word pictures that kind of appeal to everybody. Everybody can understand them. He explains things a little more in detail to his disciples, especially when he first identified 12 specific ones 
to be the inner circle. But in this case, he finally gets on the level of the Pharisees and he's speaking to them in technical terms about the law. And he says to them, hasn't it been written in your law? And he's quoting here, he's quoting God the Father saying, I said, you are God's. Then Jesus makes this legal argument at a point, a fine point of the law about interpretation saying, if he calls them God to whom the word of God was written or to whom it came and the scripture cannot be broken, then do you say about the one that the father sanctified, me, Jesus, do you say about the one that the father sanctified and sent into the world that I'm blaspheming because I said I am, a, I am the son of God? All of this takes place in Psalm 82. Let me read that to you. This is really interesting. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph was David's choir director. Asaph wrote a lot of songs and a lot of psalms, and, and they're primarily psalms of, of praise. Um, but he wrote this interesting psalm, which puts Asaph squarely in the camp of prophet. And it says this in Psalm 82. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. This is the ten-ton anvil falling onto the Jewish leaders. This is that, because this psalm is about judgment of the Jewish leaders. And basically, Jesus is going, I'm the one. I'm standing here in the midst of the congregation. He's in the temple, right? And I'm instructing you, the rulers of Israel, saying, you should be doing these things, the things I'm doing. I mean, the psalm even lists the type of things that they should be doing as leaders. They should be helping the poor, not condemning the guy who Jesus healed on the Sabbath and say, man, it would be better if you were still blind. In that same circumstance, they asked the question of Jesus, well, then are we blind? Right, his answer If you were blind, you'd be better off. 
But because you say we see, because you say we have spiritual understanding, remember last week what Pastor Alex pointed out about this metaphors, about these metaphors. If you had not said we understand, you'd be in good shape. But you say we see. We're the, we're the guys. We have the repository of truth. We have God's word that we can literally put our hands on. We know what we're talking about. Jesus said, if you had been blind, there'd hope. But because you say we see, your sin remains. This is the ten-ton anvil. These are the same guys that Jesus accused of being blind not too long ago. These are the same guys that Jesus said, you're not my sheep. These are the same guys Jesus said, you're of your father. The devil, you're not of my father. These are all things that, you, and they're piling up, piling up, piling up. And here we are in the midst of this study where we're trying to say, oh, by the way, the end of Psalm 82 is, I will judge you. So here we are looking at Jesus asking what is Jesus' take on life, on eternal life, on abundant life? And we're saying, well, we looked at what Jesus said, follow me, be my sheep, follow me. Like a sheep follows a shepherd, and I give eternal life. You will have this abundance. How are we to understand all this? Okay. That just lays out all of the framework. That is the context. That's the big picture. That's the 10,000-foot view. When we can look down at these things that we've always looked at individually and see, no, they're part of one big, long, extended conversation between Jesus and the Jews, and this is the point at which, boom, he's basically... I don't want to say that he's no longer offering the opportunity for repentance because we're going to see in the next few weeks that he does it again, again and again and again. But this is the point at which he has made his legal judgment on them. And unless they get out of the way, the 10-ton weight of the law is going to land on them. So now that we have this, now that we have this whole big picture, and we're looking at the second half of John chapter 10, and, and there's really nothing in there where Jesus turns to anybody and says, okay, here's what it means, here's how to do it, here's how it goes. We ask the question every week, so what? So we have all this information, we have this perspective, we see this thing going on, this conflict, but we also see Jesus to speaking to us in the crowd, saying, be my sheep, follow me. I give eternal life. I grant security. How are we supposed to understand this? I want to look quickly at verses 40, 41, and 42. <clears throat> 
Verse 39, they were seeking to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. There was nobody there to get in the way. How did he get away? And he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, John performed no signs. But everything John said about this man was true. And many believed on him there. So what? So what? Well, here's what I believe we need to take away. We need to be answering the same question I ask every Tuesday night. How does this information inform our conversations with lost people? Because that's what this long conversation is. It's a conversation between Jesus and the most stubborn unbelievers out there. And it went on for a long time, years, Until the end, Jesus was always holding out. Here's my invitation. Believe. Just believe. Here's what I believe the so what is for us today. We're the guys. We're the ones who have the message Jesus had. You know, what he was saying here, I think, for his disciples, because they were always one of those three groups, right? For the disciples was, this time is going to come to an end, and it's going to come to an end soon. I will not be here. He goes on to tell them, as he already told them in the presence of the Pharisees, They're going to kill me, and then you're going to be alone. Then what? The so what for today is in Matthew. It's like the very last thing in Matthew. Where Jesus had already been crucified, already resurrected, met his disciples. He said, hey. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Be my witnesses. Make disciples. So for us, when it comes down to just living life, so what today is, Jesus is still inviting But he uses our mouth. He uses our hand. He literally challenges people to look at the works that we do. So I could be very specific. Say we need to do this, this, this. We need to say that, the other thing, and something else. But I can't do that. I can't do that because... 
I don't know who you're talking to. I don't know who the Holy Spirit is going to put in my path when I step out of this room. I don't know who's listening online. I don't know who's going to listen 10 years from now and hear this message or anything else I've said or done. I don't know specifically what we need to say, but I can tell you this. We got to be given the invitation. That's, that's it. We need to join Jesus in his work, extending the invitation to life, eternal life, abundant life, life that comes from him and we have no right to withhold from someone by keeping our mouths shut.